welcome to the Archimedes Podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where we think about the practice of evidence-based medicine and then run through a couple of case examples where something in our doctor's life has triggered a bit of thinking, they've thought a bit more and they've decided, you know, I actually think I really do want to know the answer to this. And then they've formulated a, a strict clinical question, gone away to the evidence to try and find what they can get, looked at what's come back, sort of appraised it, sort of assessed to see how good it is or how bad it is, how much we can believe, how much we can't, incorporated that with a broader understanding of what's going on in the world and in that disease process, and then gone, yeah, I, I think this is how we should go forwards with a clinical bottom line or two. The rules that we have are fairly strict on the idea that you can't just say more research is needed because it almost invariably is, but we've got to do something while waiting for that research to occur. And so we always have something coming out the far end, even if there's something coming out the far end is, give it a go. I'm not really sure where we're at here. Now, the thing that we're talking about when we're thinking about how to do evidence-based medicine is not knowing. How much of a good thing do we need? Now this is the idea of not sureness back again. Now there could be a variety of answers to that title drawn from the repertoire of popular music ranging from a dusting of a good thing to a life embodied in it. In the setting of evidence-based medicine, and this is like almost every other evidence-based medicine question that's ever asked, the answer is probably, it depends. Now, if our question regards the use of a significantly toxic or complex therapy where other options exist, I'd be wanting a fair bit of good evidence to get me to swing to use the new thing. For example, if you're trying to present mucositis after chemotherapy, and that's the sort of the incredible soreness that comes with a, a mouthful of ulcers right the way down the esophagus and through the gut sometimes. If you're trying to prevent that oral mucositis and you wanted to use a specialist intraoral laser needing three visits a week and a team of dentists and dental practitioners to deliver it, I would be tempted to demand high quality RCT showing it was effective, practical and worth the investment of resource. Now if you were trying to do the same thing, you know, prevent the mucositis, but the intervention was the delivery of cryotherapy, that is flavoured ice intraorally, yeah that basically means an ice pop or a slushy then I'd be much happier to take maybe some adult trials, a little bit of, of children's data, and, and go with the idea that kids are unlikely to be harmed by frozen squash. Now, what's going underneath these two differences? A way of trading risks, in a sense. We are comparing the chances of positive and negative outcomes and our confidence in the estimate of those. Now, it, it is too simple just to split it into that way, but positive tends to refer to good patient outcomes, including experience as well as the measurables that come with research and medicine. And negative refers to iatrogenic harms, monetary expenditures, and also resource use, including opportunity cost. Now, opportunity cost is something that gets talked about a lot, and it's a posh way of saying something approximating to the dentist can't be in two places at once. Now, if you use this sort of lens of weighing the potential harms against the potential benefits and 
adding in not just harm in a traditional medical sense, but broader understanding of that. Use that lens to see why sometimes we're demanding very high evidence and sometimes we seem to be going away with nothing. It may help demystify and understand more the sorts of decisions that are being made. Our next question is a rather complex one, and it comes from a team from Switzerland and Melbourne, in, including Petra Zimmerman, Andrew Pollard and Nigel Curtis, and it asks the question, what time interval is needed between the administration of live attenuated vaccines? And with vaccines in the headlines at the moment, it's a particularly extra relevance. The clinical scenario is a mother who consults for the 12-month-old MMR vaccination, but the vaccination record reveals that very recently she had the BCG vaccine because she was planning a trip to India. That was only two weeks ago. And you wonder, because you remember hearing it, that you need a gap between the live attenuated vaccines to avoid diminishing the vaccine responses. Now, the group went away and they searched through Medline in an extensive way to try to get an answer to these questions. It had to be a very, very broad search because nobody actually puts a title out saying, I have tried two different schedules and... And there were 4,592 potential studies identified in the first instance. That went down to 16, which fulfilled the inclusion criteria of humans investigating the interference of immunogenicity of one live vaccine upon another. These studies ranged in size from 100 or so patients up to 1,700 patients, and within them there were 10 RCTs and 6 purely observational ones, and they covered a number of different vaccine types, the MMR, the yellow fever vaccine, the uh, oral polio vaccine. Um, so, so a wide range of stuff that was that was looking at, and the, the sort of the Japanese encephalitis vaccine, and, and the interactions between these two. And generally, simultaneous of vaccines on the same day is recommended because then it avoids missing opportunities for coming back. And it means you increase the chances that a child is fully vaccinated. But if live attenuated vaccines are being given, many, many authorities recommend a four-week gap between the doses. And this is published data from a long, long time ago, looking at the yellow fever vaccine and measles vaccination and sort of trying to assess things with scab formation. In this review, they looked at that minimum four-week interval or 28-day interval but also looked at shorter things such as a, a 21 day interval. Others looking at maybe a slightly longer interval, up to six weeks between them. Now, actually, when you looked at people that had sort of accidentally had them at a shorter time period, there's very little evidence to show that there's any sort of linked diminishing of antibody responses apart from in the oral live attenuated vaccine so that's basically the oral polio and the oral rotavirus vaccine giving them say a mmr yellow fever giving them all those sorts of things together with the the oral polio vaccine and rotavirus might diminish the antibody response very marginally, but the protective efficacy effect of that is really unknown and, and, and very, very theoretical. And so, so it, it, there's probably an argument to say that 
if they're going to have a bunch of live attenuated vaccines, it, it, it might actually be more useful to get them all in on the same day rather than leaving a 28-day window and, and having a greater risk of someone not coming back compared to a small theoretical risk of the antibody levels being lower. In a completely different swing away from vaccination and preventative medicine, although preventative medicine might have been helpful in this case, we leap to a team that have asked the question from Trieste in Italy, are opioid analgesics superior to non-steroidals in children with musculoskeletal trauma? Now, when I say musculoskeletal trauma, does everybody's head leap to the bouncy devices that we call trampolines? Sites of fun and delight and multiple minor injuries. Well, this one actually is a girl who fell over while skating another dangerous pursuit uh, and did have an extremely painful left wrist scoring 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10 pain, we want to get on top of it. What would be best, non-steroidals or opiates? Now, the team went away and they looked in a number of different databases to try to bring together RCTs, ideally investigating this in the children and adolescent population. They found 273 potential articles, took that down to 12 full articles that they looked at in great detail, and then came out with seven RCTs with numbers ranging between 60 and 450 in here to bring them together to see what is the best way forward. Now, as you can imagine, in this lump of studies, there were a number of different sorts of comparisons made, some using non-steroidals with and without paracetamol, some having a range of different types of opiate that's being considered, with pain scales being measured at different time periods, not always the same across the different studies, and using age-appropriate scales to measure the pain that's being experienced. Now, these are, are mainly in, done with kids, many of them with visual analog scales and some of them with a faces scale, which I'm sure you'll have all seen. They exclude the very smallest children, the youngest ages being here at around four up to the adolescent age range, and under four has not really been studied. Though, with neonatal stuff, I suppose you've got a real big concern about what it would a musculoskeletal trauma be, and maybe other things need to be asked, not just about analgesia. It's actually not that many studies for something that is exceptionally common, and you'd have thought that would have been studied a lot more detailed. And and going in on this, all of them came up with the idea, near as damn it, that almost regardless of the different type of opiate that was being used, the non-steroidal came back with as good as if not better on some areas to have a pain relief. The adverse events were more obvious in the opiate groups and often slightly more sort of severe and unpleasant, but that varied a little bit between studies and between opiate types. Very difficult to be able to separate those two ideas because there weren't so many studies looking at the different areas. 
What they came back to is a bottom line that said opioid regimes were not superior to non-opioid regimes improving pain relief, but that they did have more side effects. And so actually going in with the magic calpol and the amazing non-steroidals of Brufen and their friends is probably the right thing to do rather than hitting them with the opioids when they turn up in the emergency department. So, a big range of things that we have discussed from the uncertainties in life through other uncertainties and ending up with fairly sureties at the back end of it. If you have questions that haven't been answered before, that you think you need to just look at the evidence for, then why not get in touch? We run a relatively supportive approach, which is kind, but that sometimes means that we tell you very, very straightforwardly that this isn't going to fly, and we do reject Archimedes's that are sent in. So please, please, please steal yourselves before you press the submit button. We love to hear from people and about the podcast and about the blogging and about the articles themselves and we hope that these things are fun and keep you going on your commute to work so until next month have a lovely time and we hope to hear from you soon